Okay, y'all, um, we're continuing our series in stories from the dark, okay? So here's the deal. Here's how we're going to begin. I was a student uh, at UMass, and, and I went on a, a summer mission project with about 60 to 70 other college students from all over the country. You don't know each other. You apply. You meet at this place, and we met at a place called Wildland, New Jersey. And those of you that are familiar or not familiar, anybody familiar with Wildland, New Jersey? Who's been there? <laughs> My parents. Great. All right, some of us, my wife, yes, of course. Um, here's the deal. Wildwood, New Jersey is not a family beach. If you want to go to a family beach or beaches, you go north to Ocean City. Wildwood, New Jersey is a place where 18 to 25-year-olds come to work for the summer and come to party on the weekends. Uh, it has the largest boardwalk outside of Atlantic City in the whole United States. And then there's miles of boardwalk. It, they have several piers. At each pier, think of Heart of Texas amusement parks, a variety on each pier. At one particular pier was called Maury's Pier. That's where I worked. And there was a, a, a wet and wild water slide, and I was a lifeguard there for that summer. Uh, but Wildwood is like this. Wildwood is like Daytona Beach. If you've been to Daytona Beach on spring break, Wildwood is like Daytona Beach on spring break the whole summer. You got the picture? So it's a crazy place. And so what we would do, one of the things we did is that the beaches were always loaded on the weekends, and so we would do all kinds of outreaches on the weekends. One of our favorite was this thing called slow motion football. Anybody ever heard of that? When we actually did this in Daytona one time, we made national news because it attracted so many people on the beaches. The, the city leaders and officials and vendors, they loved it because it was good, clean fun. <laughs> Here's the deal. You had 15 guys dressed up crazy, like Darth Vader, Freddy Krueger. Uh, you had one guy dressed up as a Statue of Liberty, another guy dressed up as a big old baby wearing a diaper with a passy. I mean, it was just crazy stuff, but it's a staged game of slow motion football with these wild costumes and these wild acts. It's hilarious. It's fun. Uh, it gathers crowds. And then what would happen at the end of it, one of us would go up to the crowd that's now like hundreds and hundreds of people. We'd say, hey, listen, we're college students from all over the country. We're down here to work for the summer, and we're also down here learning how to build a relationship with God. If you're interested in hearing how you can know God personally, stick around. We'd love to talk to you. And then we would all sit around and do evangelistic conversations, right? Okay, so on this particular summer, it was the 4th of July, which is the biggest weekend, obviously, of the summer. There are Thousands and thousands and thousands of people on the beach. So much so that you basically, you can't even body surf because you bump into somebody. You come up on the hard sand and everyone's all tucked in together. You get on the soft sand and it's like, oh my word, can you move over? You just have no place to go. The crowd is huge. It's the biggest I have ever seen to this day. Uh, we went back, Nancy and I went back as uh, like staff at that particular time. It's never been bigger than this particular uh, July 4th. As we were jogging through the crowd, I was leading the team of guys through the crowd, and we were coming to our designated spot to play the game. I, I sensed something was not right. <laughs> why, why, you asked, Jeff? Why wasn't it right? We, well, usually when we're doing this, people are smiling at you, and they're taking pictures, and everybody thinks this is great. You know, it's like a, it's energy charged, it's electric, and it's happy, and it's joyful, and it's a fun thing, and no one is smiling while we're running through the crowd, and I'm like, this is not. What's, what's up? The second is this, is that there was a, a gal on our team who was there for the evangelism part 
I could see her head bobbing through the crowd while I'm running. We're doing these hilarious chants. Ah, you, I don't know. We made up all these weird chants, right? Funny stuff. I'm coming through, and then finally she catches my eye, and she mouths. She shakes her head viciously and mouths, no, Jeff, no, stop. And then I knew, okay, something's not right. So let's just do a little timeout. What happened? Well, about moments before we got there, unknown to us, two rival gangs in Philadelphia happened to be at the same point at the same time that we were having the game. Tempers flared. Knives were pulled. Someone gets stabbed. Have you ever heard of a hot mic? We've mentioned that here, right? A hot mic. This was a hot crowd. All it needed was a match, and this crowd would blow up. And here come 15 dudes yelling at the top of their lungs, running straight at them. Oh, did I tell you what I was dressed as? The first person they saw on this line was Conan the Barbarian carrying a big old club. Yeah. So, Acts 14, why am I saying this? Because the Apostle Paul is in the middle of a hot crowd, a hot crowd. What has happened here is this, is that there's an ancient message that's ingrained into your very DNA this morning. There's an ancient message that's ingrained into your brain and ingrained into your heart, and it's been there since Adam and Eve. It's been there throughout all generations, all civilizations. It is normal. It is natural. It's ingrained in you. And that ancient message is the message of good advice. But all of a sudden, this this crazy guy that actually healed someone, and they started calling him Zeus, he starts preaching this message of grace, of good news, not good advice. And these religious leaders were so appalled that there could be such a message. They were so appalled that it's not about what you do, but someone else has done. It's not about your performance, but someone else's performance. It's not about your living and dying and rising. It's about someone else's living, dying, and rising. They were so appalled by that message that the crowd was stirred up. It was absolutely hot. And the message of grace was the match that blew this thing up, and it blew up all over Paul. And the next thing you know, Paul is all alone in the midst of abuse. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. TJ said, he came up to me before the service, he goes, hey dude, are you sure this is only like four verses? says, I've been doing like 16 slides for all the text you've had earlier. I go, yep, it's all we got. Uh, Acts 14, 19. Now, when we get to 21, I want us to read it. When we get to 20, I want us to read it together, all right? So, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead together. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. All right, 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. These words are living and active. And Jesus, you are the one with more mercy. And so would you meet us personally, personally with your more mercy this morning. We ask in your name, amen. Okay, so Paul probably didn't see the first rock coming, right? Why wouldn't he have seen the first rock coming? Because the crowd, you know how crowds have to be. I'm now familiar with crowds. Mobs. When you are in the midst of them, everybody's yelling at you. It is yelling, and they're jabbing you with their fingers, and it's push. It's push. It's like, who's going to respond? Who's going to throw the first punch? So he probably didn't see it because everybody was in his faith, and everybody was screaming at him. The rock hit. Now, we don't know where it hit, but we know it it hit hard, and, and so did the second rock, and the third rock, and the fourth rock, and the fifth rock, and probably after the fifth rock, it's raining rocks, too many rocks, too many rocks to block, too many rocks to actually see coming, and so one strikes his head. He's out cold before he even hits the ground, but if you were to interview Paul after that, I bet he would have told you it was a relief to finally get knocked out. The mob gathers around Paul, right? They gather around him, the text says. They gather around him. They look down at this bloody, broken mess. One of them, the crowd, goes over, grabs his hand, feels his pulse. He's dead. Satisfied, the crowd leaves, except for a couple big boys who drag him, grab him, and drag him outside the city. Now, remember in Job, when you go outside the city, that's where the garbage dump is. They drag him outside the city, to the dump like a piece of trash, and they left him there. And then just like that, just like that, the greatest man who's ever lived besides Jesus is silenced. Stopped. Grace is silenced. Stop. How do you survive a stoning? How do you survive abuse? So our stories from the dark so far, we've seen Jacob alone in the dark, right? Then we looked at Job alone in the ashes. Well, today we look at Paul alone in abuse, persecution. What do we mean by this? We mean bad things that come at us outside of our control. So this is not about like the bad stuff we have in us that comes out of us, that hurts us and wrecks us. This is about the bad stuff that comes at you, outside of you, and wrecks you. How do you survive that? How do you survive a stoning? How do you survive abuse? What happens next is the stuff of legends, right? So you got mixed in this mob, you know, mixed in the mob, you've got these sad, scared faces because these are the faces of what are called the disciples here. They're in the crowd. They've seen it get overwhelming. You've got Barnabas, which is Paul's best friend and his right-hand man, the one that actually encourages Paul. He's in this mix. You've got probably when Paul and Barnabas healed this crippled at the beginning of this chapter in verses 1, this guy's crippled. He's probably in the mix. When that happened, the whole city thought they were Zeus. Thought they were Greek gods. 
right? How quickly the mobs turn on you, right? They're all gathering around, and it says literally, look what the text says. It says they surrounded him. This is what happened. So they surrounded him, all these sad, scared faces, just can't believe it. The greatest man who ever lived is dead. And can you imagine the moment his eyes popped open? The first three guys probably went, ah! And then the text said, he rose up. Paul rose up. Now, don't miss what happens next. What happens next is breathtaking. It says in verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. Did you, are you reading what happens next? And he what? And he entered the city. What? This is a crazy man. The city that just stoned him and dragged him out like a piece of trash. The first thing he does is he gets up and he goes back into the city. This is crazy land, right? So Paul is abused. I mean, he's been hated and he's been reviled. You know, a stoning is so personal. That's why, that's why it happened. A crucifixion is not personal. Crucifixion may have been like excruciating for the victim on a physical level. I don't think it's excruciating for the victim on an emotional level, because on an emotional level, you have your community, you have your friends, you have your family, you have your people throwing rocks at you, saying to you while they yell at you and curse you and belittle you, saying to you with the rocks and with their words, you don't deserve to exist on the face of the earth. You are nothing to me. I condemn you incredibly personal. So can you imagine this kind of hatred, this kind of vitriol, this kind of abuse verbally and then physically, it's like you're being taken apart piece by piece because, you know, the rocks are hitting everywhere. How many do you got How many do you have to be hit by before you're dead? You're dying by inches. So imagine the emotional mental trauma. Your 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 system, your neurological system is just shot. It's blowing every fuse. Trauma, off the charts. But what does he do? He gets back up. Goes back into the city. He continues to do what he was called to do. He stands. It's unbelievable. There's even more, though. It gets like even crazy land. Paul keeps going, verse 20, and on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. Now, just so that we get this right, Derby's 60 miles away. So on the next day, with a broken, beat up, bloodied body, he walked 60 miles to Derby. This puts CrossFit to shame. This puts a tough mutter to shame. This puts a 26-mile marathon to shame. This puts special forces training to shame. Now, let's get this right. He does this the next day, right? I mean, I wonder how many lungs collapsed. Um, this is not after a bunch of painkillers the next week, the next day. This is not next month. This is the next day. This is not after two weeks in a hospital. This is the next day. This is the next day. This is not after three months of intensive 
therapy for his post-traumatic stress that he just endured. This was the next day. The next day, he walks 20 mi- 60 miles to Derby to do what? To preach the message of grace. Paul is abused, but he doesn't stay down. Paul is abused, but he gets back up. Paul is abused, but he stands up. Paul is abused, but he continues on. Gets even crazier, can it? Paul has been abused in three cities in a row. So by the time we get to Lystra, this is the third city in a row he's been abused. So he was abused in Iconium. He was abused in Antioch. And now he's abused in Lystra. Now what says next in verse 21 should give you the goosebumps. Look at it. When he had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, 60 miles away from Lystra, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, they returned to Iconium, and they returned to Antioch. He goes to all three places that he just was abused at. This is breathtaking. Paul returns to the cities. Paul is abused. He doesn't stay down. Paul is abused. He stands up. Paul is abused. He continues on. How do you survive a stoning? By enduring. The Navy SEAL was here, he'd tell you, by embracing the suck. It's one of the best definitions of endurance I've heard yet. How do you survive a stoning? Paul says, you endure it. Do you know that one of the greatest characteristics of God in the Bible is endurance? Like that. Endurance. Endure the suck. Endure. Rise up. Some of us are thinking, you're out of your mind. I mean, come on. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what these past eight months have been like. You don't know the level of suffering I have. And the answer to that is what? No, I don't know. I really don't. None of us really do. And then others are thinking, well, listen, he's an apostle. I mean, come on, Jeff. He's an apostle. He's a super saint. You know, there's God's A team, and then there's God's B team, and then there's the bench, and then there's his special forces. (laughs) An apostle (laughs) is a super saint. Surely you're not saying we, we can do what he did. Surely we aren't called to be a part of whatever he's being a part of. Surely they're special unique and set apart and different from the rest of us. (laughs) You could get away with that if Paul just didn't write 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 8 and 9 because scholars believe that 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 8 and 9 are the words that he wrote right after his stoning at Lystra. Are you ready for them? Here they are. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. How do you survive a stoning? You endure. You endure. How in the world do we endure like that? 
how in the world do we endure like Paul? I mean, where does that come from? Where does that endurance come from? How does it happen? Because right now that's on all of our minds, and right now we're, we're going through the index of the Bible to figure out how does that happen, and we're going through all the, the Christian bookstores that tell us daily how this is supposed to happen, and we, we go to all the messages we heard in church if we grew up in church, and we're thinking, how does it happen? And there's so much data out there, it's so confusing, but it, it kind of comes down to like three of them, and three categories. Like the first one is this, is will more feeling one more feeling make you endure when the rocks are flying. You just need more passion. You just need more sincerity. You just need more desiring of God. Is that what's going to get you through? Those of you that have been in these kind of situations know that when the first rock flies, all feelings evaporate. Good feelings. Sincere feelings. Like passion feelings. Like, I can do this kind of feelings. They, they go just like that. Okay, so if it's not more feelings, it's not more intensity, if it's not more passion, it's not more sincerity, it's not more emotion that's going to do it for me, is it more willpower, more self-effort, more like self-activation? Like, I just need to, more determination, more willpower, more dedication to God, get up earlier, fast longer, read my Bible more. Is that what's going to do it? Is that going to give me the endurance? <laughs> Here's the issue to that. There's always one stone out there that has more self-effort than you. Eventually, you and I will find a stone that has more power than you. Maybe this past eight months, you found that stone. Maybe it was the pandemic. Maybe it's the cultural conflict. Maybe it's the confusion and chaos in the church. I don't know. What is it for you? One thing's that I love sports. You know, sports have been so much a part of my life growing up. I can tell you one of the best lessons I learned, though I hated it, was this, that there was always someone better than you. Always. I hated it. But it's the truth. There's always one rock out there that's better than you. And will take you out. Don't think there's not. Dr. Hanner used to say to a bunch of pastors, you are one circumstance away from completely losing your, and he said the word. Okay. Here's the last category, and it's more probably, you know, category number two, the feelings one. Most of us intuitively get, although we don't want to, you know, we still think we can genie up that passion that's going to last forever. The willpower one, we kind of get, but this is the one that's a little more tricky. What about some kind of spiritual secret, some kind of spiritual technique, some kind of spiritual discipline that the ancients found out about that's being rediscovered in the medieval age? What about some kind of new law or rule or list or application or knowledge to do it? Something to activate you, you know, something like a a spiritual power aid drink, a spiritual Red Bull that you just got to drink it and it activates you. Some way to tap into God or the Holy Spirit that's going to give you this energy, give you this endurance to do it. Now, I, I, we don't have time because this text doesn't do it, but I, it, it addresses it in one way. And at the end, I, we, maybe we could point it out. It, 
the evidence of this text is just Jesus teaching everywhere. It's just teaching about Jesus, teaching about Jesus, teaching about Jesus. So that, that's one clue. But we don't have time to get into the biblical theological arguments about whether this is true or not. All I want to do is get real practical with you, those of us that are thinking this way. Those of you that have grown up on all the spiritual red bowls, that you've taken each kind of brand and each kind of spiritual energy drink you can take. Here's my, here's my question. Does the plethora of spiritual red bowls out there speak to our healthiness or our unhealthiness? When you have so many spiritual Red Bulls, so many spiritual Powerade drinks out there to take, is it speaking to effectiveness or ineffectiveness? Is it speaking to power that they give or impotence that they give? And we're just looking for the next one. That's all I want to say. Okay, so how in the world do we endure like Paul? How do we endure like Paul? <laughs> how do we do this? Listen, y'all, Luke, Luke is brilliant. Luke is like... He's a historian, so you know historians are geeks, right? And so that means he loves details. There's no wasted word for him. He's also a physician, so he's a highly detailed dude, highly qualified mental dude, right? So whatever he writes is highly intentional. He could have said what he just said in verse 20 a billion different ways. He could have said it this way, but when the disciples gather around him, he woke up. When the disciples gathered around him, he sat up. Or when the disciples gathered around him, he stood up. Or when the disciples gathered around him, he picked up his teeth. Or when the disciples gathered around him, he opened his eyes and said to us, what are you staring at? But instead, Luke's so intentional, so overly intentional, that scholars debate whether it literally happened or not. Here's what I mean. They dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. Scholars are saying, did he literally rise from the dead? Or metaphorically, is this just an allusion to a resurrection from the dead? I don't know. Do you? But the point is the same. How in the world do we endure like Paul? How do we do this? It's, it's everywhere in this passage. By relying more on the resurrection than on the rocks. How do you survive? How do you endure a stoning? How do you endure an abuse? The only way this text seems to communicate that any of us are able to survive that kind of abuse is to rely more on resurrection than on your rocks that are coming your way. What do we mean by this? I mean, look at this. This is pretty, the image is pretty, look at verse 23. The image in the text says, uh, 23, and they appointed elders, they're appointing spiritual leaders. So this is what he does in those cities that he just got abused in. He points spiritual leaders. Why? He's pointed spiritual leaders to tell the message of grace, the message of good news, to counteract the message of good advice that's in everybody's brain and everybody, it's hardwired in our DNA, right? And then when he says this, but this is what's so fascinating about it. It says, when they appointed the elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they, here's the text, the line. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is an unbelievable picture. 
The literal translation goes like this. They placed them before the Lord. Do you see this picture? This picture is that in that time and in that day, at that period, they put these, these spiritual leaders before a living Lord. Present tense. The text is present tense. The word chosen is very, very intentional, Lord. Lord in the Bible, Lord in the New Testament means a present victor, a living conqueror, a living king, a living Lord. In other words, a resurrected one. This whole passage is about life before a present resurrected one, a living Lord. In other words, Lord means that Jesus rose up. He rose up and now is present everywhere. Your sin I want you to think about your sin for a second, but I want you to think about your sin not in terms of like the specific things you do, like, oh, you lied today, which you did, or any other particulars. I want you to think more about your sin the way the Bible categorizes sin, which is a dark power, a condition, a nature that's in you. If you're a Christian, you've got two natures in you. If you're not a Christian, you have one nature. We're all one person, but if we're not a Christian, we just have one nature, and that nature is night. If we're a Christian, we have, we're one person, but we have two natures. But I want to talk about that sinful nature, what Paul calls the flesh. The dynamic of that reality is that it is, it is a decreative force. Images in the Bible are like it's the bottomless pit that doesn't have a bottom. You get sucked into it and you can't get out of it. Other images are it's like the flood, the most powerful decreative force in all the world. The other images are it's night, right? Other images are it's enslaving, it's in bondage. So this is us. And because this is our condition, we produce things like we lied today. We produce things like we stole or whatever all the Ten Commandments point to that we confess. We hated our neighbor, right? Now, I want you to think of all the trauma and the wreckage that comes from that nature and the acts that come out of that. Think of all the emotional, mental trauma that happens to you, the emotional, relational wreckage you give to other people and that you've contributed in and they've done to you. And then think through all the abuse that's come your way, people sinning against you, how that's impacted you. Think of comprehensively sin and the trauma that it unfolds. And I want you to think about it, and I want you to think about it as rocks. Coming your way, taking you out, and all those wreckage of sin and sins and the rocks couldn't hold Jesus down. He rose up. And I want you to think of all the heinous, intelligent, celestial beings that are out there that hate you and hate God. And hate Jesus. They couldn't hold him down. He rose up. And then I want you to think of. I want you to think of. The, the darkest of all powers. Which is death. 
the consequence of sin. And hell, being in it forever, couldn't hold Jesus down. He rose up. Rely on that more than the rocks. What do you mean, Jeff? I just don't, practically, I just don't get it. Here's how you get it. The rocks are not your life. They're not your life. Abuse is not your life. Whatever you're going through, these past eight months, whatever you think, whatever's personal, whatever's real, whatever's national, whatever's racial, whatever's institutional, whatever it is. The rocks are not your life. Abuse is not your life. The resurrection is. So it looks like this. When, when the rocks come your way, when abuse comes your way, you say to the abuse and you say to the rocks, you're not my life. The resurrection is. Jesus rose up. That's my life. Jesus rose up. He's my life. Jesus rose up. That's reality. So you say things like this. Being stress-free, being fear-free, being anxiety-free is not your life. He rose up. Being pain-free, being suffering-free is not your life. He rose up. Being pandemic-free being culturally, chaotically free, being ideologically free, being politically free is not your life. He rose up. Being sin free. And I'm talking to you Christians that think the goal of the Christian life is to be sin free. It's not. Sin-free is not your life. He rose up. This is how you survive a stoning. If you have a better way to survive a stoning, I'm all ears. But I think I'll stick with Paul. Paul.